Hi, I'm Chow Tu, and welcome to the fourth Slate Plus episode for Slow Burn Season 7, which covered the lead-up to Roe v. Wade. In these member-exclusive episodes, we've been hearing from the Silverin team about the making of the show, and we've had some interviews that have expanded upon the themes and stories covered in the series. In today's episode, we're going to hear more from Slate's own senior legal writer, Dahlia Lithwick, about whether Roe v. Wade was the right legal case to protect abortion rights in America. But first, let's hear about episode four, the last episode of this season. Today, I have here with me Silburn host Susan Matthews and Slate's senior supervising producer of narrative podcast, Derek John, who's also been editing and doing some of the sound design on the show. Hey there, you two. Thank you for being here. Great to be here. Hi, Chow. Thanks for having us. Of course. Okay, so episode four. Susan, I know you've been editing jurisprudence news for a while before doing the show. I'm curious about what you knew about Justice Blackman before going into this season. Honestly, almost nothing, which is funny because I now have such deep affection for Justice Blackman. (laughs) But I would say that the main thing that I had always heard about Roe is that it was decided along the lines of privacy. It kind of wasn't decided very well. And we should, we being progressives, I guess, generally Democrats, maybe people who (laughs) have an interest in abortion being legal, we should just ignore that because it was important. And it was that last bit that I think really intrigued me about the decision and about who made the decision and about what the reasoning is, because I just feel like there has been so much of kind of like sweeping it under the rug or being really critical of it. I had never really come across like a full defense of the arguments in in Roe v. Wade, I feel like. And I didn't know anything about Justice Blackman who made them. And then one of the very first things that I found out about him is that he was a lawyer for the Mayo Clinic for a decade before he served on the Supreme Court. And so that was really interesting to me. That was like the first thing that sparked my interest in Justice Blackman himself. And that was really like kind of where I started with looking into him. Yeah. And did you know any of the details about how they got to the right of privacy before that? I like had the broadest understanding of like, it was also the justification used in Griswold. And I had some understanding as well about the fact that, you know, subsequent decisions like the right to gay marriage were all founded in that same reasoning. So I like knew about that, but I don't think that I fully understood what the right to privacy was or how it was derived. And I hope that after listening to this episode, like everyone can actually explain it um, because I certainly could not before I worked on this show. Yeah. Uh, Derek, so I'm curious about what your experience was like approaching this episode as an editor. Um, Did you know a lot about Roe before this? And like, how were you thinking about portraying all of the moving pieces with Nixon and Berger and Weddington and Blackman and all of all these people in this episode? Yeah, I mean, I think just like for every episode in this series, you know, I knew maybe the vaguest notions about this history. Like, sure, we all sort of thought we knew what Roe v. Wade was. But what's been so fun, you know, kind of editing Susan and the and the rest of the team as they went and dug up all these great stories was just bringing it to life, like the human complexity and the the characters behind it. And, you know, like I think we had a sense of who Nixon was a little bit, but I didn't really know anything about Blackman. I think I maybe knew like he was 
part of that dynamic duo from Minnesota that they refer to as the Minnesota Twins because I used to be a Minnesota <laughs> Twins baseball fan growing up. And that's like oh, wow. all I knew, like 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 he and Berger. And it was just, you know, I, I loved being able to sit in on some of the interviews with Linda Greenhouse and others where they just talk about him driving to court in his little VW Beetle and eating at the cafeteria. And like people wouldn't even realize that that was Justice Blackman. And it's just those kinds of things that I think Again, in, in every episode, we've just short, sort of tried to bring to the fore um, and just sketch these people out so that you can really identify and kind of get to know them. And I think the hardest thing about this episode was just figuring out, A, how do we squeeze it all into one episode, but also like, where does it end? Because, you know, obviously, I mean, the decision comes out, but then there's like 50 years of contentious history afterwards. And I just want to say just on that point of where does it end, I had found out this fact about Justice Blackman in the Mayo Clinic very early on. And in my like original structure and pitch for the show, I thought that Blackman was going to be first and that like we were going to start with him and then come back to him. Or I didn't know exactly how it was going to work, but I was picturing Blackman as going first. And one of Derek's very first suggestions, which was so smart, and I'm so glad we did it, is to just leave the actual road decision for the end of this four episode narrative arc. Like we all know what's coming. And I'm really glad that we ended with that. And it's so true that we're ending with the decision. And then there's so much emotional fallout. And there's so much about how we got from there to now that we can't cover and we're not covering. But we're trying to I hope that we compiled an act three that leaves listeners satisfied. Uh, one of my favorite details from this episode was actually that story of George Frampton hiding away Blackman's draft so that no other new clerks could get to it. Was that something that came out in your interview with him, Susan, or was that something that you read about somewhere else? That totally came out in the interview. And oh, it wow. is kind of funny because we did a pre-interview with George Frampton and then we did the actual interview with him. And in the first interview, he really wanted to talk about like the broader context and how Roe was decided. And then in the second interview, the actual recorded interview that, that we did with him, that's really when you get into like what we're trying to do in the show is actually tell the stories that make these people sound like human beings who like made these decisions <laughs> that were so con consequential to the rest of our lives. And so we really tried so hard to get into the nitty gritty of like, and what was this like? And where were you? And like, how often did you talk on the phone? Like, did you write letters? Like you couldn't send emails? <laughs> like, what, what was this process like? And so he just told us that story off the cuff. And I thought that it was totally fascinating. And the thing that I also love about what George Frampton said to us is that he then had to leave, like his clerkship ended. And so for the rest of that fall, he was like, waiting to hear <laughs> how wondering. similar the opinion was going to be to what he had drafted. And he, he told us that he met for coffee with Justice Blackman and like Blackman, you know, wouldn't reveal anything. I also just love how that little detail of locking away the paperwork, like in the desk, it, it reminds me a little bit of what's happened in just the last couple of months where there was like all this cloak and dagger leaking of the Alito decision. And now, you know, everyone's saying, oh, they can't trust each other. And obviously that's been going on for much, much longer. Definitely. Okay, so yeah, this is the last episode of the season and talking about the leak. So I mean, how did it feel to work on this episode and this whole season after hearing about the Justice Alito leak and, you know, with the expectation that the Dobbs decision was going to come pretty soon? Yeah. 
what Dobbs is proposing and its arguments is that the threshold be moved back from where it is now, which is at about 23 weeks of pregnancy to 15 weeks of pregnancy. So one of the feelings that I had and that our jurisprudence team had and something that we've grappled with a lot when talking about what's happened with abortion law in America is that there's this feeling that it's hard to convey what has really happened because already, you know, there's such a lack of access to clinics in so many states that like Roe might as well not exist in so many states already. So we went into this really feeling like we have to kind of make this case to people so that they actually understand what is being lost. Because I had this feeling that this was going to be decided in this way that the Supreme Court has issued so many rulings on abortion where they've just chipped away at it, but they've also said, we're not chipping away at Roe. You know, the, the way that they talk about it is not very clear to an outside observer. So one of the challenges that I felt was to, to make it really clear what was actually happening at the court by giving people a real understanding of what the original opinion in, in Roe guaranteed. So that was how I was thinking about it for months and months and months and months. And then in May, the leak happened. And I just remember reading that drafted opinion that night and really feeling like, oh, they're really going for it. Like they're swinging as hard as they can at this. One of the things that has been really hard about that in particular is that there's this whole way in which Alito's draft tries to cite history. And I've been reporting out so much of that history myself and looking at what Justice Blackman looked at. And the discrepancies between those two things have been really tough. So they're just these really diametrically opposed drafts. And I think that it has been really challenging, like almost emotionally, to be really explaining this opinion that was written by this man who was so deliberate and I think like quite honest and was really trying to figure out something that he could defend on constitutional grounds and like really had no agenda going in about where he wanted to land on this opinion. He just wanted to do something that like was satisfying to people. It's been emotional to research that while knowing where we're probably going with Dobbs. Yeah. Do you think there was anything about the leak that kind of changed the actual production? Like, did it change any of the framing of the stories or even, you know, people that you would you wanted to talk to, people that you thought about talking to? I think that this is one of the most interesting things that I've kind of learned and tried to grapple with in working on this season in particular, is that the stakes never got lower, like in particular with the Alito draft, the stakes only got higher. And I think that one of the things that has been the most challenging as a journalist looking into this topic and reporting out this series is that I knew going into it that I wanted to report it as a journalist and I wanted to look at both sides and I wanted to present something that anybody with any opinion on abortion could listen to and like possibly engage with. And that feels like a lofty goal in where our politics are in 2022. But when it felt like, how are we going to do this? Like, what's the right thing to do? What's the right choice? The thing that we always looked toward as a team was history. We kept on going back to the history. Like when we were talking about whether I was going to say the word pro-life, like we talked about the fact that that's how they would have talked about themselves at the time. And it felt like it kind of melted away some of that controversy. So the thing for me is that while we've worked on it, the stakes have gotten higher. And I knew that that was going to be the case going into it. And it's almost like I wanted to do this series because I wanted to find a way to talk about abortion and Roe and this topic 
with different stakes. Like that was one of my original goals in what we were trying to do. And so to have that happen was really hard. And I don't know. I'm curious what you think, Derek. The way that I've come out of this is that I feel like I understand now how irreconcilable the two sides are. And I think that that was like almost to some extent Justice Blackman's fundamental mistake in what he was doing is that I really think that he thought that he was in some ways splitting the difference and giving everyone a little bit of what they wanted. Like it was really considered a compromise opinion when it came out. And so everything that's happened in those 50 years that we don't cover has obviously changed how we think about that. And we're not really engaging with those 50 years, but hopefully we're laying the groundwork so that people can kind of understand how deeply held these beliefs are on either side. I think that's true. I mean, I I do think in episode two, when we look at the Wilkies and kind of their uh, sort of informal title that we were batting around internally was like, it's the Wilkie's world essentially. And we're just like living in it. And it feels like we get at some of that. And, and I think to your point, it's hard to imagine now, but 50 years ago, I mean, most people thought the equal rights amendment was going to pass. And I think no one could really foresee how this would become such a divisive kind of radioactive uh, issue in America. And I also think the other thing that I've feel like I've learned from the series is like, if you want to change things, it really takes like sustained, persistent, just like trench warfare (laughs) in some ways, like you have to get organized and you have to fight and fight and you're going to probably lose a few battles along the way, but you just keep at it. And and I've been thinking about that a lot, especially when it comes to other issues like, you know, gun safety and things like that. Like, how do you actually make change? And I do think There's some lesson in this series looking at how the anti-abortion forces have sort of gradually over time gained more influence. Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. Like that's almost like the end point that I hope that people, particularly people who are going to be processing the Dobbs decision, come away with for this. The other thing that I think is like the secret ingredient of why this conversation is so hard to have now that just didn't exist before 1973 is the partisanship. Like in so many episodes and in so many stories that we were looking at, in so many places, we found these things of like, oh yeah, and in Michigan, it was the Democrats who were mostly pro-life and it was the Republicans who were trying to change the law. And like, you know, just the way in which that was all scrambled and it wasn't aligned in the way that it is aligned now at all makes that landscape just feel so different. And that is one of one of the things that I was really interested in just looking at how it was talked about then and, and you know, how that played out when we didn't have to deal with that additional element that just supercharges this already really supercharged issue. So also one thing about making the season right now is that, you know, the Supreme Court doesn't announce when it's going to release its final decisions on any of its cases. And so we aren't and we weren't sure about when the Dobbs decision might come out. You know, it could be June or July. So can you talk about what would have happened if that Dobbs decision was released mid-season or, you know, was there any planning around that? 
what was the planning around that? (laughs) (laughs) A lot of hopes and prayers. Yeah, really, you have to make these choices and kind of walk into them. And so because of that, we kind of made these choices to make the series as we did it. We didn't really have a plan for what was going to (laughs) happen. We had an advantage, I think, in the fact that our jurisprudence team is so good at what they do and so in the loop that like they've been covering June decisions for decades and they were basically like yeah it's not going to happen before June 22nd so if you end your series then like it it very much played into the timing of when we launched and how we paced it and how right. many episodes we did and like all of those practical decisions was very much surrounded by this but we did not have a backup plan <laughs> so looking back are there any stories or anecdotes that you had to cut that you wish had made it into the series I think for me Susan's going to laugh, but I I still sort of have a place in my heart uh, for Ron Sachs, who (laughs) was, I uh, I know, he was this uh, guy in Florida. He was the student newspaper editor. Was it the the Gator? The Florida Alligator. Yes. The Florida Alligator. Yeah. (laughs) And it was kind of this interesting little like tangent side story to the Shirley Wheeler story. Like right around the same time, he got in big trouble for publishing a list of like abortion clinics, I think, or abortion providers. And uh, basically, like the president said, no, you can't do that because it violates the Florida law, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, you just had this great story about kind of just being this like college student newspaper editor who's going up against the man. And he's like he they decide to like put this little flyer insert into the paper anyway, and then he gets in trouble. And anyway, we've met some amazing people uh, in the reporting of this. And it's like, you wish you could include all of their stories, but it's just, it's just hard. And he's like a student being like, and I was taught that the first amendment means freedom of the press. So like, isn't that what, like, like his reasoning for why he did it, I think was just incredible. I loved that story too. I wish we could have included it. The other thing that I would say about this series in general, obviously, is that usually Slow Burn has some resonances with the present. Once the leak happened, it was like, oh, we're living in this right now. Like it felt almost too on the nose. And there was one story that we were talking about the night that that happened because Jim Robinault, who's the lawyer, and he wrote this book, January 1973, and we talked to him for the show. And when I talked to him, he told me this story about this clerk who had gone to college with a friend of his who he was clerking on the Supreme Court. And this friend of his was writing for Time magazine. And so he had kind of given him a preview of what the opinion was going to be in Roe v. Wade, kind of saying like, it's going to be released this day. And he didn't really enforce an embargo or anything, but he kind of like trusted his friend and his friend brought it to his editors, I guess. And his editors were like, we got to publish that. And so Time Magazine actually published a story about what the opinion in Roe v. Wade was going to be one day before Roe v. Wade actually came out. They like got the scoop. The thing that I think is interesting about it is that, first of all, it was only one day in advance and it was definitely right and the opinion was set. So there are some ways that it was different. It was like definitely not as dramatic as what happened with Alito. But in other ways, it was exactly the same because what happened afterwards was that Warren Berger, the chief justice, was like super pissed off about this and said... Who who leaked this and like asked for all the clerks to reveal what they had done. And he eventually forgave the clerk and didn't fire him. But the reaction about the secrecy and the fact that like maybe the clerks are a little leaky felt pretty on the nose. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, yeah. Anything else that you wanted to add in before we wrap up? You know, I just wanted to give like a major shout out to the whole slow burn team. And and that includes you, Chow, uh, by the way, and everyone who has sort of helped us get the word out. 
And I just want to like talk about our producers, Samira Tazari, Sophie Summergrad, Sol Worthen, you know, just the amount of archival tape that we found, the reporting that you, Susan, did. It's just remarkable. And it's like, you know, the thing that I've always loved about Slow Burn is like, yes, it brings the past to life and you're hopefully experiencing what it was like to live during that time. But I, I just really was just so proud of I think this kind of cinematic soundscape that I hope that, that we created that really puts you there. And I think it's just a testament to also Merritt Jacob, our technical director, just everything sounded so, so good. And oh, can't forget Josh Levine, who kept us all on track and maybe dug up my favorite detail of the series, which is that Sarah Weddington used to play this crazy restrictive game of basketball growing up in Texas, uh, which you will hear about in episode four. Yeah, congratulations on a great season. And for the rest of this episode, we're going to hear more from Susan's interview with Slate's Dahlia Lithwick about whether or not Roe being decided on the right of privacy was actually a good legal decision. So let's listen to that discussion now. Dahlia Lithwick. Thank you so much for joining me today. I have been wanting to talk to you about this for months. Thank you. I'm so totally stoked about this project. I wanted to invite you on because in the process of doing all of these interviews with all of these people in which we talk about how Roe versus Wade was decided, how it came to be, I have had the experience many, many times of having the conversation about what actually happened. And then the person has this moment where they pause and say, but this is my theory of what should have happened. And maybe if this had happened, we would not be in the current predicament that we are in where we're waiting to see what happens with how the Supreme Court will rule in Dobbs uh, and how that will affect Roe versus Wade. So today, what I wanted to do is I wanted us to think through and to talk through all of these other theories, all these alternative worlds in which if abortion had been decided differently, would things be any different? To start off, I think that we just want to establish and to get really clear about how Roe was actually decided. I think People generally know it was decided on privacy, but I would like you to start out by explaining what was the set of precedents that leads up to Roe? What is the actual legal reasoning in Roe versus Wade? Right. And I think in a weird way, Susan, this answers your meta question, because I think that there is a longstanding, not just academic convention, but colloquial public discussion about Roe Convention that starts and ends with this is a ridiculous, you know, hippie pot-smoking opinion by a ridiculous hippie pot-smoking court in the 70s who rooted it in nothing, tethered it to nothing, invented it out of thin air, you know, and I think there's a real habit. And Across, by the way, the board, like I think there is a longstanding habit on both sides of the aisle to say this was entirely fabricated from whole cloth. And then you get into the penumbras and the emanations and aren't they hilarious? And like now we're just doing like Kabbalistic interpretation, right? We can talk about whether 
it's true. And I think your root question is, it's not true. <laughs> like It goes <laughs> back uh, to actually a very serious, thoughtful right of privacy and family autonomy and uh, decisions about who you procreate with and how you raise your children that has its roots in the 14th Amendment. And we'll talk about that in a second. But I just think on the meta question, you could actually have done that about anything, right? You could have done that about Lochner and all of the cases that just say, freedom of contract, everybody gets to do whatever they want to do. <laughs> Fun, fun, fun. Let's just strike down everything. But nobody quite does it with anything but With Roe. anything else. And I think in particular, since we're starting with the meta question, for me, as the person who doesn't have a law degree, when you talk about Roe as being grounded in privacy, there's something very automatic that makes you think like, and you know, it's, it's about the relationship between the woman and the doctor, but privacy and abortion, like, connect together to just reinforce this idea of, like, it's a shameful thing and it had to be private and we're just protecting that rather than, like, affirmatively protecting a certain right. So the way that you said it before of it's grounded in privacy but it's grounded in family autonomy, like, family autonomy is a quite uh, eloquent way to to put that. So let's talk about that in part because I think it's been entirely neglected in the conversation around Dobbs and SB8, you know, when we try to talk about this longstanding right that goes back to, you know, Pierce and Myers and these incredibly important cases about you get to decide what your family is. All of that history is packed into an amazing book by Peggy Cooper Davis. Uh, It's a book called Neglected Stories. It's kind of a neglected book about how much of the construction of that right, that fundamental right to family autonomy, to decision-making about who you marry and how you raise your children and where they go to school. All of that line of cases is reverse-engineered from an understanding of the failures of the Bill of Rights to codify the protections that slaves didn't get, right? So you cannot think about this. And David Gans did an amazing job on a recent amicus episode really spelling out that what the 14th Amendment was contemplating and the idea of what it was conferring upon chattel slavery and the institution of chattel slavery and freed slaves was all the things that aren't in the First Amendment and the Second Amendment. And so that is the ability to marry who you want, right? Once the slave trade ends, he told me, uh, the only way to continue to have slaves is by forcible rape of women and removing women from their husbands and removing children from their families. This is an economic decision that is made to perpetuate slavery, right? So all of the things that come under this, what we call this inchoate basket of privacy and family autonomy is quite literally reverse engineered so that people who were not allowed to marry, who were not allowed to raise their children in their homes, whose children were ripped away from them and forced into servitude, all of that is what is contemplated, both in the words of the 14th Amendment and then in the line of cases that arises from them, which is why when we say, oh, you know, the justices in the 70s just like invented this from whole cloth, are ignoring the entire body of, you know, we have proven evidence of what the 14th Amendment was trying to do and the horror that the framers were expressing at what slavery did to families and family autonomy, and the whole entire line of cases that has to do with how you educate your children. They cannot be forced to learn dogma that they don't believe. 
that whole line of cases that sweeps in Griswold and the right to mm-hmm. contraception, that sweeps in Loving versus Virginia, the right to marry a person of a different race. Those are really substantial, coherent rights that then become Roe v. Wade. And so I guess this is an incredibly long-winded way of saying, Susan, that the idea that this is just like plucked off a tree that doesn't exist is not true. The tree has deep and abiding, sprawling, I would say, roots that go right back to the very definition of what freedom was when the 14th Amendment was drafted. And in the context of when Roe is being decided in 71 and 72 is coming off of a set of cases that are specifically grounded in reproductive rights that have to do with this specific right to privacy that is exactly, as you say, grounded in family autonomy. Right. And and also, I just think that when we cartoonishly say that Roe is about some limited privacy interest between a woman and her physician, that's another like massive misnomer mm-hmm. of what is contemplated when we talk about, again, liberty and substantive due process and bodily autonomy and family autonomy, that it's not about shameful whispered conversations that the state should stay out of. No, it is about foundational ideas about who gets to decide what your family looks like. The family as the building block of everything else that the state does. And to just rip that away and then mash it into these shameful conversations where women make regrettable uh, decisions in the privacy of a doctor-patient relationship is like the tippiest tip of that massive iceberg mm-hmm. of what the 14th Amendment contemplates. I mean, one of the one of the reasons when I went into reporting this episode in particular about Justice Blackman is that what I had read, like the understanding of him is that he has this decade of experience at the Mayo Clinic. He is the kind of justice who is very contemplative of you know, expertise. Like he sees his role as a justice as being very analogous to doctors' roles. And when he actually is thinking about Roe, he is thinking a lot about the relationship between the doctor and the woman. He is thinking a lot about what's happening on the ground because the rules are as they are and how they could possibly be. But later in his career, he comes to see the decision that he's made as having such a profound impact on the lives of women and their ability to have autonomy over their futures. That It's not that the decision is not connected to women's autonomy in the beginning, but it, he emphasizes that increasingly over his career. One of the knocks on Blackman's writing in Roe is that the word doctor appears so often, right? And the word woman is like, meh, and this other person. And I think one of the things that a lot of feminists critiqued was that, you know, the white guy with the beard and the white coat is so centered in that opinion and in centering professional expertise. He really does a little bit sow the seeds for some of the paternalistic stuff that, you know, Justice Kennedy picks up on, like all the justices pick up on about like, oh, poor little women, you know, making hard choices and they need good experts. And in a weird way, which I know you're in love with Justice Blackman, (laughs) we're not, nobody's taking that away from you. But in a way, um, some of that centering of the rights of doctors really gets pulled through all the way into clinics reading these completely ridiculous scripts about, you know, the link between breast cancer and suicidal ideation and abortion because it's still centering the doctor and the professional And the medical choice. Yeah. Yeah. It's very Blackman to do this. And I think part of his reasoning there, I mean, again, you have a court that is 
nine men. There was a woman who Nixon was contemplating appointing to the court, and he didn't because the chief justice at the time said, you appoint a woman and I will quit. So in the context that Blackman is in, he knows that he has to work within this patriarchal system. He's part of it, obviously, but he is like very small C conservative and is trying to figure out the thing that will be the most convincing to everyone. Like that's his nature. He's trying to bring on the other justices. He's trying to do something that will be palatable to the American people. Like, and this is what he comes up with in 1971 and 72, because of course, like, yeah, centering the, the white dude in the coat who's an expert, like maybe Americans still believe in experts at that point. So all the way back in 1993, Peggy Cooper Davis writes this astonishing large review article called Neglected Stories and the Lawfulness of Roe v. Wade. And this is just so responsive to your initial question about, you know, what's with this family privacy? This is just her introduction. And people just need to read the book. But this is what she says. The Constitution of the United States does not contain the word family. It makes no mention of marriage, parenting, procreation, contraception, or abortion. People nonetheless invoke the Constitution when rights of family are threatened. When interracial couples were told they could not marry, they appealed to the Supreme Court. When parents were told they could not have their children instructed in foreign tongues in private schools, they said that their constitutional rights of liberty and family autonomy were being trampled. When the state of Illinois removed children from a father's care without any showing that he had been neglectful, he claimed a constitutional right of family integrity. When the state of Oklahoma ordered a sterilized constitutional claim was raised. When the dispensation of contraceptive devices, the performance of abortion were crimes, people protested the loss of a constitutional right to choose when and whether to bear or beget a child. And the reason I'm reading it to you is because it really locates this long, 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 long line of just very, very foundational ideas that if you are not free in your body, in your family, in your ability to bear children, if in your ability to not be sterilized against your will, in your ability to marry the person of your choice, you are not free. And so, again, you know, when you hear John Cornyn just ranting on and on about how this comes from nowhere, it's rooted in nothing, it's absolutely the antithesis of what these family autonomy rulings mean. And I would just add parenthetically because it drives me nuts. This idea of family autonomy is why people in Texas are surveilling their teachers in classrooms about what books their kids are reading. This is why they are banning books in library, because they're rooting all of their own notion of constitutional privacy and child rearing and uh, choice about how you raise your child. This is foundational, right? Your family is everything constitutionally, and yet the ratchet only goes in one way. The thing that I wanted to ask about next is Sarah Weddington, when she argues Roe, My understanding of her approach is that they're kind of throwing everything possible at the wall of what it could be. And so she argues for privacy, but she also argues for equal protection under the Fourth Amendment. And she also does this argument – I haven't read that much about this – that she just argues that the right to an abortion is is simply absolute. But I wanted to talk in particular about the equal protection idea. What would it have meant for Roe to have been grounded in equal protection? Well, this was Ruth Bader Ginsburg's huge knock on Roe, that she feels that if the world had just left her to her own devices Mm -hmm. and let her bring the litigation she wanted to bring, it would have been planted not in the rocky terrain of, you know, penumbras and emanations, but it would have been rooted in the 14th Amendment, you know, equal protection right to not be discriminated against on the basis of your sex. And that's really carried a lot of why 
water. I mean, I think a lot of the academy was like, well, if Ruth Bader Ginsburg thinks that that's where it should have been. I think that the argument is, and by the way, you really heard this argument in Dobbs, women cannot participate as equal players in the economy if they are going to have however many, how many pregnancies do we have across our lives if we don't have conception? Nine or 13. You're going to be pregnant 13 times and you can't get contraception and you have to carry them to term and then you have to take care of them and feed them. You cannot be equal participants in the economic life of the country. And this, by the way, is an issue that they tried really hard to raise in the Dobbs argument. And John Roberts was like, bracket all that. Like, he's like, I don't even. Women can just give their children up for adoption. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was Justice Barrett. But even like John Roberts, I mean, one of the arguments in Casey was that we didn't have the evidence of that. Now we have this economist brief in Dobbs that says this is all the ways that women are just whomped if they don't have equal access to participate in the economy. And the chief justice is like, meh, let's talk about, you know, viability. So I think that the argument essentially is that as a component of being a class of women that need the protection of the Constitution. If you are conscripted into having babies every time you're pregnant, uh, you can't possibly have equal access to, you know, the benefits uh, of working. And, I, you know, it shows up in Casey. Uh, by the time Blackman is writing his separate opinion in Casey, he's actually writing by restricting the right to terminate pregnancies. The state conscripts women's bodies into service, forcing women to continue their pregnancy, suffer the pains of childbirth, provide years of maternal care, and he's saying they don't, the state doesn't compensate women for their services. The government assumes they own this duty. So he's actually full on into the project of using equal protection arguments by the time he gets to Casey. And it shows up in a whole bunch of places in Casey. But I think that the problem with it was to sort of say, oh, in hindsight, in 1973, he should have written that, assumes way, way, way more about where the law was in terms of protecting women, equal protection. In 1973, the court was just creeping up towards saying, you know, women (laughs) were a class that deserved protections. They were still using like low levels of scrutiny to say like, oh, it's okay if women can't do this and that and the other because men protect. I mean, that's where we were. And so to say, I guess if we'd let Justice Ginsburg left her to her own devices, she would have gotten there. But the court certainly wasn't there. And then there's this amazing thing that I had never read before about how they the justices all believed that the ERA was about to pass. So they were like, no, nah, we don't need to do this because the ERA is coming and we don't need, you know, to give women uh, special protections because the ERA is going to do it. Right. There isn't enough progress, but there's an expectation of progress that totally impedes this as being the winning argument, even though it's presented as an argument. And the real question here that I have is like, I think that the whole theory of like, oh, if it had been grounded in equal protection instead of in privacy sort of takes at its word a little bit too much this idea that like the real problem that the opposition has with abortion rights is the legal reasoning rather than the outcome. Like, I just don't 
necessarily buy the idea that if it had just been reasoned differently, that the outcome would be much different. What do you make of that? <laughs> I mean, the best argument there, I think we're going to talk about it, is viability, right? Yes. Is that, you know, exactly. oh, if they just set viability at a different place, because we're at a place now where we're having a conversation about life beginning at yes. conception. And yes. so I think, you know, I guess there's a sort of intriguing question about if the decision had not provoked the kind of religious backlash that it provoked, maybe we wouldn't be saying right now that life begins at conception. And so I don't know what the cart and the horse is here, but it seems to me that however you were going to get there, I mean, you know this material better than me now. I think they were saying life begins at conception even then. They were saying it before. I've been thinking about this a lot because this was another one where Jim Robinell, who wrote this book January of 1973 about, you know, Roe coming down, LBJ dies, all these things happen in January of 1973 that kind of like set the stage for what's going to happen in America. When I first talked to him on the phone, he kind of said to me, like, if you are going to say that women should have a right to abortion, the question then becomes what or really when is the limit. And so you have to become comfortable with that. And his theory was very much what you were just referencing, the idea that it's because it's in the second trimester and the fetus is essentially recognizable as a baby that all of this backlash is created. And that if Roe had just gone with the first trimester as the limit, which is what actually Justice Blackman had when he comes back from the Mayo Clinic after that first summer where he's researching it, and he's convinced by a law clerk and by a a couple of rulings that happened that year to go to the point of viability because viability has this kind of inherent logic to it. So viability at that point is 26 or 28 weeks. And the interesting thing here, too, is that when they talk about this in 71 and 72, there's this assumption of progress where there are all these kind of notes of like, and science will continue to evolve so that viability goes back and back and back and back. So like they're saying it's here, but it's really this broader idea. It's such an interesting point you're making about technology and this assumption that it's unidirectional. And in fact, when you think about it, I mean... There's a Trump judge who is sitting on the federal bench whose entire professional career was devoted to getting rid of IVF Mm -hmm. and getting rid of surrogacy, right? So it's the opposite direction. When you look at the briefs in Hobby Lobby, right, now we're talking about contraception, not abortion. And now we're talking about like Ella and Plan B, right, which are being called abortifacients, right? So I think the idea that if we had just said it earlier and earlier, like the earlier you said it, the earlier technology will claim is when life begins. And so if you, in fact, are now aborting before you are even pregnant, which is, I think, the theory in some of the briefs in Hobby Lobby, then this is a kind of a fool's errand. Like, no matter where you move the marker, the marker can always be moved. And I think, you know, theological problems with surrogacy, which have nothing to do with where the marker is or with IVF, I just think it's an attempt to rejigger the history Mm -hmm. that is blind to the fact that this was whack-a-mole. The last one that I wanted to talk about is this idea that what should have happened is we should have given the states more time to hash it out 
or we should have had the ERA, or we should have had a constitutional amendment, or we should have done it in a way that wasn't decided by the courts, but that was either state-by-state legislation, that we should have, like, worked it out as a nation. I think there's been a lot of scholarship on this backlash theory and the idea if they'd gone slower, maybe the states would have come along. I think everything you have researched for this show suggests that that's very wishful thinking. But I also think maybe it goes to your bigger point, which is why is this kind of a second class fundamental right? Because nobody said, I don't think maybe we shouldn't do Brown v. Board. Maybe we should just let the states get to desegregation on their own. I mean, I guess some people did say maybe we shouldn't do Obergefell. Maybe we'll just wait for Mississippi to be okay with marriage equality. And I think that there's a way in which it exactly assumes the problem that you started by positing, which is why is this seen as a not serious right? And why is it the case that nobody says that other fundamental rights (laughs) are not, you know, serious enough to enshrine into constitutional doctrine? And so I think there is... On the one hand, you know, there's a lot of work, and I know Linda Greenhouse and Reva Siegel and lots and lots of people have had the counterfactual historical skirmish about maybe the backlash it engendered was too big. And certainly you're right, Justice Ginsburg has said, like, if we had done it littler, uh, maybe it wouldn't have provoked the response it was going to provoke. Like you said, I think that response was already happening. Elise Hogue has written an amazing book about how this was really reaction to school integration that got Mm -hmm. airlifted into um, this very emotional issue that people would activate on. Yeah. So I I just am not entirely persuaded that as a sort of counterfactual, a historical take on things is true. But I also think the minute you concede that this is a lesser fundamental right, and so maybe it should have been played different, but it's totally fine, you know, on anti-miscegenation or it's totally fine on a school desegregation, I think you've already lost the war. And so I think maybe the unifying theme here is If on both sides of the aisle, we agree to treat it as though it's not actually rooted in any real doctrine, and then we agree that maybe it could wait for 20 years. And Catherine Frankie from Columbia reminded me on a recent podcast that we should also just be really mindful that the minute after Roe went into law, if you were poor, it did not protect you, and that we have never had a right to abortion in this country uh, if you were poor. So it's always been chopped and chopped and chopped and chopped until near nothingness and then to all agree that even that is just too much to ask for and maybe we should have waited for 20 years feels like it gave away the game long before the game was even fully fought. Okay, that's it for this season of Silburn. Thank you so much for listening and for being a Slate Plus member. Please keep telling all your friends about the show. And thanks again.